Welcome back to Parallel Justice, the podcast that dives into the crimes and cases that have dominated the national headlines through exclusive interviews with the very attorneys who fought the cases. Some of the discussion you hear today may be controversial. However, we know that silence, especially on tough issues, only enables and encourages wrongdoers. It's our goal to bring these issues to light so that we may have meaningful discourse around them. The views expressed in this podcast are those of our guests, who are experts in these areas. Their opinions are invaluable, however, they do not necessarily reflect the views of the National Center for Victims of Crime. The topics we discuss may be disturbing, and they are intended for adult audiences only. Some of these topics may also be triggering, and we encourage you to practice good self-care and seek support. I'm Renee Williams, Executive Director of the National Center for Victims of Crime, and your guide through this conversation. Now, let's start the show. Welcome back to another episode of Parallel Justice. Today, I have guests that have been with us before um, to discuss the Catholic Church playbook, and they are joining us again because they are the experts on this. We're going to talk about another tool that the church has been using, statutes of limitations, but first I want to give them a chance to reintroduce themselves to our listeners. We have Jeff Anderson and Mike Finnegan with us. Would you both like to introduce yourselves? Sure. My name is uh, Jeff Anderson, and uh, nice to be with you and uh, all of our colleagues uh, for this podcast. Uh, I have uh, actually been working with survivors of sexual abuse, focusing uh, originally on Catholic clergy and the cover-up of it since uh, the early 80s. Good morning. I'm Mike Finnegan. Good to see you again, Renee. And uh, I've been working here uh, with survivors and had the honor of representing survivors for the last 20 years. Well, thanks again for joining us. Now, last time we spoke, we talked about bankruptcies as one of the newer maneuvers that the Catholic Church is using to avoid being held accountable for, for any of the abuse that's happened for decades. But today I want to talk about some of their other moves, and in particular, one of their favorites, which is the statute of limitations. Now, because we have a lot of lay folk that listen to this podcast and statutes of limitations, I think can be confusing for anybody. We're going to start with a very basic building blocks quickly. Um, Can you explain what a statute of limitation is and how they work in a normal personal injury case? Statutes of limitations are time limits set by each legislature that set forth a period of time in which a, uh, uh, a victim of a tort, a victim of a crime who has been injured, has the ability to bring a civil action. And uh, historically, every state uh, sets their own statutes of limitations. And in the cases of sexual assault or assault, uh, the statute of limitations have been set by legislatures um, and in all torts by legislatures largely to protect uh, the powerful and the corporation and and, uh, by proxy uh, wrongdoers um, uh, and thus favor uh, the wealthy and powerful. And so when it comes to instances of wrongdoing, they're usually uh, somewhere between two years as long, and sometimes in some instances, six years from the date of the crime or the date of the harm. In other words, if a child is abused at 
uh, or somebody is assaulted at the age of 21, they have two years to bring any action for the assault. And that is the time limit set by each state legislature. And in Minnesota, by example, um, the statute of limitations for intentional torts, such as intentional wrongs, such as assault, uh, is set at two years from the date of the assault. And uh, those time limits are set by legislatures across the country and uh, have been and remain a major impediment uh, for survivors of sexual assault. And Renee, uh, uh, an example of that, if you take it outside of the uh, child sex abuse or sexual assault setting where some of them come from, uh, is if you think about uh, accident, like a car accident, the legislature is going to have some time limit. There's a car accident. People that are in that that accident are hurt. They break a leg, break an arm. Then they want to give them so much time to make a decision whether they're going to bring a lawsuit based on that accident, that car accident. And uh, what Jeff's uh, encountered and all survivors have encountered over the last 35 years is that those time limits uh, are not remotely close to what survivors of childhood sexual abuse need and deserve. So, so I'm I'm glad you drew that distinction because there is some use for some statutes of limitations in the car accident case. You don't want to lose evidence, but when we're looking at child sex abuse, that's a little different. Can you all talk about how that's different and maybe explain what we expect? of children in these cases and why that's wrong and, and why the statutes of limitations just don't work in these cases. Yes, well, let's talk about statute of limitations as public policy and the effect of that when there is uh, uh, the sexual assault of a child. Um, um, I analogize it a little bit to murder. Uh, in the case of a, a civil cases and in criminal cases, the legislatures have largely removed statute of limitations for murder or homicide. Why? Because the murderer is capable of covering up and concealing the evidence of the crime so that the time can pass. So that analogy is apt in the case of childhood sexual assault or sexual assault by an authority figure, because it is that authority figure who has first a position of trust and power. And that authority figure then can uh, groom uh, the victim survivor into believing they are being cared for and given special attention, it's called grooming. And therein lies a bond. And then that offender can coerce uh, that uh, child and or vulnerable adult into silence by saying, this is between you and I, don't tell, it's our secret. And then can be even ever more coercive by saying, as is typically the case, and if you tell, you will get in trouble. And then it can be ever more coercive that if you tell uh, anybody at any time, um, you will be blamed so that when we look at the average population of the survivors we're looking at right now and working with 
across the country, uh, particularly in New York, New Jersey, and, and California right now, we look at that population, we calculated the average age of those survivors of clergy abuse alone to be 57 years old. Well, and before we get into the Roman Catholic Church hierarchy, because I do want to discuss how they've used this, I want to stay on the individual level. What, in your experience with your clients, allows them to finally come forward 50 years later? And, and what do they say about why they kept it um, and why they didn't disclose? And, and how does that affect kind of, we call it the tolling of the statute or the discovery of the harm? When did they discover their harm? So most of them, uh, the first part of it, uh, Renee, most of them don't, you know, the, the, uh, don't experience any of the injuries, you know, the major injuries of depression, suicide attempts, uh, drug and alcohol uh, abuse until much later in life, usually 10 to 15 years after the abuse. And so uh, what happens is, and the contrast, if you go back to the, the contrast uh, between you take a kid, let's take a 10 year old kid that's in a car accident and they break their leg instantly. They know something bad has happened instantly. They're hurt. They're in a ton of pain and that leg has to get fixed. And so they know that, that there's harm right away. The 10 year old kid that's getting abused, like Jeff said, oftentimes they're getting groomed. They have no context for what's going on. And it's not until now they're in their 20s or 30s that all of a sudden they're you know, attempting suicide or they're, you know, using drugs and abusing drugs and, and not knowing why. And it's been 10, 15 years since, since the abuse happened. Uh, so there's a, a delay in even when they have the, the injuries that they experience. That's one of the, one of the difficult things. And so usually what happens is that, that they start experiencing those things. And for most people, uh, the thought of telling other people uh, that you had this experience once they're now they're in their 20s or 30s is something that that most people can't do at all. And they're struggling just to to make it and not wanting to revisit that thing that happened and unpack that thing that happened you know, 10, 20 years ago when they're a kid. Uh, so oftentimes we see that there's some event that happens later in their life where they have their own child that's the same age. And so that kid that was abused at 10, now all of a sudden they're, you know, that man or woman is now 40 years old and they have a 10 year old kid and they see that kid and realize that, that what happened wasn't their fault and realize how young and vulnerable they were. Uh, oftentimes that can be a, a trigger for them to come forward. Uh, sometimes it's that they've gone through, you know, the self-medication of using drugs and alcohol and now they've gotten clean and they get to a better point and they're in their 40s, 50s and they're able to look back and see why some of those things happened. Uh, but it's usually something, some external thing that, that happens that causes uh, disclosure. Another instance is going into treatment at the age of 50. And in treatment, you're starting to excavate, you know, why you're so, uh, so troubled and, um, and visiting your histories of addiction and oftentimes disclosures get made in treatment. And then finally, um, seeing and realizing through the media and public disclosure and discourse, the name of the offender. 
And that's why we put out reports of all the offenders we know about and put them into the media even before we sue because it gives the opportunity to survivors to see the names and hopefully the pictures of these offenders. Uh, and it triggers them to say, oh my God, I'm not the only one. And that uh, efforts of disclosure of the identities of the offenders and their pictures as offenders makes them realize they aren't the only ones and thus incentivizes them to make a real hard disclosure and ultimately uh, do something about it. And those are the kinds of things that cause survivors to make what we call delayed disclosure. Well, and I think too, you both touched on this, but sometimes you don't even know the full extent of the damage and the full extent of the harm. I just remember when the Pittsburgh Erie report came out, there was a gentleman who said, this wasn't just me. I couldn't hug my children for years. And, and so he didn't know that 50 years later, it was going to be a generational issue. And you don't know the extent of that harm. And that, you know, they all uh, survivors on the initial report, always under report and never ever uh, appreciate the harm that has been done. It takes work, it takes processing, it takes help to really appreciate how uh, their life journey uh, ties back uh, to and making a connection to the assault. They do not appreciate that the addiction has some relationship to numbing their feelings because they feel so bad about themselves and their life. They do not appreciate why and how they have this anxiety disorder Often kind, oftentimes called PTSD and or a mood disorder called depression and other things like it that tie back to it, or they have self-destructive behaviors, whether it's cutting, suicide ideation, rumination, uh, sleeplessness, and all the other things we know uh, exist in this space, but rarely do survivors ever have any appreciation for it early in their disclosure of the actual abuse. Now let's talk about those disclosures and the hard disclosures. So we have a kid that's nine and says, Father Murphy is doing this to me, to his mother. And what we know, at least what was happening then was the mom said, no, he's not. Um, where does that fall within the discovery doctrine? If he can say that he told his mother that, does his statute start to run even as he turns an adult, becomes an adult? So most courts, unfortunately, have said, yes, it starts to run. And oftentimes, uh, like we saw in Pennsylvania and we've seen in Wisconsin and Minnesota and a number of other states, they start the statute of limitations as soon as the kid's abused. And so it doesn't matter whether they tell or don't tell, they're going to start that clock right away, right when the last assault happens. They're going to start that statute of limitations. And those kids only have a few years. And that's why. Without statute of limitations reform, people have been shut out, survivors have been shut out in all of those states, and the predators have been protected, the uh, top officials who have covered it up have been protected, and why they've uh, fought so hard against statute of limitations reform. Uh, but in that situation, oftentimes the state says, doesn't matter whether they tell or don't tell, they're, they're out, even if there is a delay, even if there is a discovery rule like there was in Pennsylvania or is in uh, Wisconsin, they, they 
don't give them the benefit of that in these cases, usually. And I, I want to talk about that Pennsylvania case that Mike referenced, um, Rice versus the Altoona Diocese, because Jeff, as you said, this is an emblematic case, but it is in no way uncommon. But I think it provides the best illustration of how the church as an institution uses the statute to get away with crimes. Um, so in that case, Renee Rice alleged that she had been abused. She actually came forward within the time of the statute of limitations. And the church said, we didn't have any other evidence ever of this priest abusing other children. So, so she decided that the church had done nothing wrong. So she did not pursue the case. Then Jeff, as you said, later, she saw in a news report that that priest had been multiple times accused and that the diocese knew, but that his files had been kept in the super secret files under lock and key. And so the court found that because she had come forward earlier, she missed the statute, but it was based on the church lying. So how common is that? And what other cases do we see like that? Uh, well, the first is that that is, you know, it's extremely common because that's exactly what the Catholic bishops and top officials did for decades and decades and decades was they would, as soon as, as they got an accusation, they suppressed it, held that down, tried to quiet the family, quiet the survivor and placate them so that they wouldn't go to the police and then it would stay internal and the words that they use and document after document is they're trying to avoid scandal. They want no publicity around this. So they shut everything down around it and, and try and keep it that way and suppress the survivors, suppress the families. And they did that across the board. So all bishops, all dioceses, when they got accusations, that was their, their mandate from the Pope and from the Vatican was suppress it, keep it quiet, conceal it. No publicity, no scandal. And then what happened uh, here and elsewhere is once they, once a survivor gets out of that suppression, and if they do try and sue, then they hide behind the statute of limitations and the time limits. And uh, they've been extraordinarily successful in doing that. As Jeff said, there are hundreds of cases that uh, survivors brought that were like, like Renee Rice and that were meritorious cases that were thrown out strictly because of the time limits. And so the that's another thing on the statute of limitations, just a note, is that it's you could have video, you know, a survivor could have video, all the evidence in the world of the sexual assault, of the concealment, documents around it, proving it. And the the abuser could even um, the perpetrator even admit it. And if they even with all that evidence, if there's a statute of limitations, the time limit is run, the courts say that case is out no exception. And that's how, that's how harsh it is. And that's, that's one piece. I think the time limits people don't understand on the statute limitations. Well, and I think Mike, Mike made a point that I think deserves to be underscored. And I think thematically is a part of our discussion here. And that is, there is a, a mandated, mandated practice, uh, both written and unwritten, uh, required by the Vatican and uh, to whom all the bishops and all the priests ultimately answer, um, that requires adherence to a rigorous protocol, uh, which has been described by various grand juries and ourselves as the playbook, uh, the bishop's playbook. 
And if you would like, I am happy to recite the various steps that are deployed and employed across this country by all the Catholic bishops. And they're required to by the Vatican. And uh, the evidence that has been unearthed is, 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 is voluminous about how and why they do it. But um, the first part of that playbook, if you'd like me to recite that, is number one, as soon as it becomes known um, to the bishop and all the clerics answer ultimately to the bishop, um, the process is uh, to um, keep it secret. And uh, before it becomes known to the bishop, the practice by the priest is to uh, make a vow and a promise of celibate chastity, but also know that they're not always required to live by it because they can't and they don't. And so as a result, so many of them just kind of tolerate it with one another. So it becomes well known in the clerical culture, but they're all uh, under this vow of obedience and uh, celibate chastity, but it is also secrecy to one another. So that is the culture in which they all sexualize uh, adults and children. So when it does become known, uh, the first response and the requirement under canon law and the practice uh, required by the, uh, the, the Vatican is to keep it secret. And that is between the bishop and the offender or whoever reports it to the bishop. And um, the second thing is to um, not take any action until and unless uh, there is a risk of scandal. Scandal means in their words, it being known by the public or somebody else outside the closed clerical culture. And if there then is a risk of some scandal, that is parents threatening reports to the police, or the police maybe getting wind of it, or somebody else knowing about it, then they still keep it secret by moving the priest. And the bishop pulls them out of the parish or the school where he is and tells the parishioners and lies to them, he's going on sabbatical. And he goes on sabbatical or to another parish and or another assignment in another locale. And if it's too hot in that locale, then another state, if it's too hot in the country, to another country, and they have the ability to do that, but usually they move them to another parish or another assignment a little farther away. And then uh, they maintain secrecy there. And then um, uh, if a parent is, is reporting, uh, playbook step number three is uh, suppress the parent and appease the parent. Or if somebody else is reporting, if it's a survivor, suppress and appease the survivor. And uh, and uh, to do something to um, to tell them that they'll deal with it, and thus to lie with them, lie to them, and then a step number four is not just to appease, but actually to lie to the public, so that uh, there's a, a, there's a, a threat of deception that goes throughout this, and they tell the public that we're moving them farther because for a reason, not the real one. It is to avoid scandal and to protect themselves and the reputation uh, uh, of the Catholic diocese. And then uh, when it becomes known and lies step four and deceive the people in the public and thus the police, when it becomes known or um, 
uh, it becomes uh, uh, on the radar of the police, um, then they will um, appease the police. And historically, law enforcement, including prosecutors, have been so deferential to Catholic hierarchy. When a bishop intervenes and says, we're going to take care of it, um, officer or chief, because it's always the chief that's got this report, uh, that brings it to them because they're alliances, they say, look, we got it. We're going to take care of it. And so they're always going to call, we call it reverential deference. They're always going to defer to the reverends and the bishops. And then they allow them to just move them and continue as they had and, um, and, and then mislead law enforcement about their actual knowledge because they never tell the truth to them. And then the next step is to continue to hide their actual knowledge by keeping secret files. And they're called the scandalous files, the confidential files, the subsecretal files. They're files that the Vatican require each bishop to keep secret and in their vaults that are any material pertaining to scandal. And in those files are their notes about what was done and how they did it uh, pertaining to this. But those are for the bishop's eyes and as a designee only. So they hide the documents and keep them in secret archival files. The next step then is uh, to, if it gets known uh, to uh, either the police or the public, then to lie and deny, uh, to deny that it was done um, or uh, uh, to lie about uh, what they knew and, uh, and that they believe it was done and then to defend rigorously the offender and themselves and thus deny liability and then hide behind the statute of limitations saying, this happened so long ago. Um, how can that even be believed? So they attack the victim and their families and those that are reporting it and suppress them further into silence. So that's a playbook, uh, step number seven, attack the victims and or their families if, if they do disclose and it becomes known. And then the next step is hide behind the statute of limitations. And if they threaten to sue, they say, you're too late and there's nothing you can do. So that keeps them oftentimes from suing. And then when they do sue, then they put the barrier, the statute of limitations up and get the case dismissed on the statute of limitations. And all the while, they're not required to disclose the documents and or their knowledge because the case is dismissed. And as a result, still suppressing the evidence. And it's only until we've gotten beyond the statute of limitations that um, we get into discovery and unearth what the history has been and how they've lied, deceived, and followed this playbook. And then when there's efforts to amend or change the statute of limitations, the Catholic bishops um, and the US Catholic Conference of Bishops have mounted an, an enormous lobby, heavily funded by them and their allies to lobby against the statute of limitations and its reform, uh, which they have been lobbying against since 1988, beginning in New York, where we testified, and across this nation to this day with mounting huge resources to try to thwart statute of limitations reform. And there you have the nine-step playbook that is uh, 
in in play as we speak. Well, and I think the irony in all this is, is Mike, at the very beginning, you said one of the policy purposes behind a statute of limitations is that so you don't lose documentation and so that you still have immediate recollection of what happened. Jeff, how many times in that did you say they have it documented? How many steps do they document everything that happens? So everything is documented. So that public policy purpose kind of flies out the window. I do want to move on. And, and the reason that we're talking to you both about statutes instead of one of our other wonderful members is because you've really been at the forefront front of the reform across the nations. And, and there's some good news there. So Let's talk about how statute reform is going um, and maybe give a general understanding for folks who don't understand what a window is. Well, let me go back historically uh, on that because in the late 80s, as uh, all these survivors are now coming forward across the nation and in Minnesota where my main office is, um, uh, uh, the cases were starting to be thrown out on the statute. And because of that, uh, I went to the legislature and through some connections I wrote a bill that uh, that wrote into law a proposal called delayed discovery of injury, and that a survivor would have six years from the discovery of the injury to to uh, to bring a legal action. And then, uh, as we were working on the bill and working with the then majority leader, we also came up with the idea of well, let's let's give survivors a chance to have all those ones that have been thrown out or time barred a chance. And we came up and it was then uh, a Senator Bill Luther who became a later Congressman Bill Luther. And between us came up with the idea of a window. Uh, that is a one year time frame in which any survivor can bring any action for damages arising from sexual abuse. And the good news is that created huge opportunities for survivor and disclosure across this country, um, not just in Minnesota. And we now replicated that same window of legislation um, with some additional provisions for discovery that's now in effect in California for three years. And we again uh, architect that, lobbied it, and ultimately got passed and is in effect until the end of this year in California. Similarly, um, the, the New York uh, window passed um, and gave a survivors uh, two years there. And the same thing now has um, uh, happened in New Jersey. And we're now uh, working with survivors in each of those states uh, to open it up. And there are other states that have opened up similar provisions that either provide for delayed discovery of injury and or provide this one year or two or three year window that gives survivors the chance to hold the offenders and those that chose to hold uh, to, to, to protect them accountable. Let, let me, Renee, uh, we've been talking a lot. And I think you asked the question uh, about what is a window because uh, that, that word gets used quite a bit. Uh, and so if we start from uh, the uh, bedrock principle that we believe is there should not be a statute of limitations. There should be no time limit on a survivor coming forward. Whenever they're ready, they should have the ability to bring a case, prove their case. And so uh, what a window is, is that what that allows people is that people that were abused in the past 
what the legislatures have done have, have created a time period where they can come forward and bring their lawsuit. They still have to prove it. They still have to bring evidence, do all of that, but they're not barred by the statute of limitations, not barred by the, the time and the passage of time. And so a concrete example of that is in Minnesota, we passed a window law that gave survivors three years. So we call that a three-year window. So from 2013 until 2016, if a survivor brought of child sex abuse brought a lawsuit in Minnesota, they weren't, they couldn't, the, the uh, church officials and the bishops couldn't go in and say that it's too late. Survivors still had to prove their cases, bring their evidence, do all of that. And then that's only open, why it's called a window is because it's only open for that short time period. And so Minnesota was those three years. After 2016, that window was closed and it was over. So people that were abused in the past had to bring their case within those three years. And various other states have had either one year, two years, or three years. But that's the concept behind a window is you take away the statute of limitations for people abused in the past, but only for a short period of time, one year, two years, or three years for people to, to bring cases. There's two things I'd like to add to what Mike just said. First, when it comes to childhood sexual abuse, there should be no statute of limitations. And uh, we're, we're moving public policy to remove the statute of limitations for all civil actions. Uh, and there should be no statute of limitations on the criminal side, that is for prosecution of the crime of, 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 uh, of childhood sexual abuse or criminal sexual conduct. And we've made progress on both sides, um, but we're heading towards removal nationwide, every state across this nation. Uh, I think it's also notable to when we lobby for changes in the civil statute of limitations, we also lobby and write changes into the criminal statute of limitations so they get relaxed and removed. Um, and they have been, and we've made huge progress there. In Minnesota, for example, we've participated in rewriting the law so that it's two years from the uh, first report to the police. Um, and so that is, uh, uh, that is also progressing uh, concurrently to reform on the civil side, that is the ability of survivors to bring civil actions. And those two things have to be moved in tandem and there's still a lot of work to be good, be done. Uh, and and is the bad news and the good news, there's a lot of progress being done and most recently in the last few years. But I really wanna emphasize something Mike said that just because you're removing the statute of limitations, you still have to prove a case. So it's not like you're just allowing all of this, but also the church then has to produce those documents that they've held for years, because that then is part of proving their case. Um, and so you at least level the playing field. But And that's true, not just of the church, but of the Boy Scouts, of, of all of the major institutions that we're seeing where there's just been abuse rife for years. Yeah, and in, in Minnesota, Renee, uh, to, uh, to put some concrete uh, uh, numbers on that, uh, in that three-year time period, there were hundreds of perpetrators, offenders that were exposed for the first time. So they're publicly exposed. Communities know that these people offended children, they sexually abused children, and, and they were not exposed at all without that law. Second piece of that is that what we were able to do and the survivors were able to do is get all those secret documents that the bishops have been hiding for decades and decades and decades 
and make those public so the public knew what the dangers were, what's happened historically, what's happening now. A lot of it was, was very, very current that we saw in the Archdiocese of St. Paul, Minneapolis. It was right up until those laws were passed. Uh, and there was a, a real peril there with some of the, some of the uh, priest offenders that were abusing kids right up until that law got passed. All of those documents were made public and those people were, were uh, exposed through that, through the window law. And I want to conclude with, if you take nothing away from today's podcast, know that statutes of limitations are confusing for everyone. They are scary. And that is why it is so important to find an attorney if you are a survivor that knows how to protect you under the statutes. And Jeff and Mike are definitely two of the best out there, and we will drop their information into the show notes. Um, but just always make sure that you are taking care of yourself and that you have full faith in your attorney because this will be a tough road, but it is very worth it. Jeff and Mike, thank you so much for joining me today. This was another great conversation. Um, and please tune in to the next episode of Parallel Justice. Thank you for joining us for this conversation. If you have any questions about your rights after listening to the show, please visit us at victimsofcrime.org. Our guest's information is also always available in the show notes. This podcast was created by the National Center for Victims of Crime in partnership with our center and affiliate, the National Crime Victim Bar Association. More information about both organizations is available at victimsofcrime.org and victimbar.org. Thank you, and please join us again next week.